So we have been going through um, some selected chapters of my book that's coming out in a couple of weeks called Daring to Think Again. And um, I'd like to take you on another little journey this morning. And that, that's kind of, every chapter is kind of a journey. And uh, see if we can go someplace that uh, makes any sense to you all this morning. And uh, I'd like to talk about the place that vulnerability plays in faith. And as I say that, you know, there might be a sense that it's kind of an oxymoron. I don't know how you were, were taught, if you were taught growing up, that uh, vulnerability in faith. When I uh, landed in the evangelical church in my early 30s, faith was understood as our rock. It was our fortress. It was our power over doubt, our power over uncertainty, and our power over all the things in life that were coming to to get us. And so faith was like the refuge and the place to go. And yet, as I started to really look into the Hebrew roots of Christianity, I found that there's a different type of faith that Jesus is trying to get across to us. And that's the understanding of faith I'd like to talk about this morning. And I think a place to start comes from a surprising direction, I suppose, from China. And in the 4th century B.C., or B.C.E. for you scientific types, um, he is one of the proponents of what is called Taoism. And Taoism in Chinese culture, Tao means the way, by the way, in just about exactly the same way that the way means the way to Jesus. It is a path. It is an experiential journey of becoming and uh, it can't be written down, it, it can't be codified, it's not legal, but it's, it's direct experience of life. And so what he has to say often greatly parallels what Jesus has to say. So why would I quote from a Chinese source? Because sometimes our scriptures get so familiar to us that they cease to shock us anymore. And we need to be shocked. We need to be shocked out of the complacency of what we think we already know. And sometimes a different voice, using the same uh, concept in different words, can help us to do that. There's a short piece that he wrote called Autumn Floods, and to me it is just amazing. I'm just going to read a little bit of it this morning, but uh, just kind of settle in and see if you can get the sense of where he's going with this. It was the time of the autumn floods. Every stream poured into the river, which swelled in its turbid course. The banks receded so far from one another that it was impossible to tell a cow from a horse. Then the spirit of the river laughed for joy that all the beauty of the earth was gathered to himself. Down with the stream he journeyed east until he reached the ocean. There, looking eastwards and seeing no limit to its waves, his countenance changed. And as he gazed over the expanse, he sighed and said to the spirit of the ocean, A vulgar proverb says that he who has heard but part of the truth thinks no one equal to himself, and such a one am I. But now that I have looked upon your inexhaustibility, alas for me, had I not reached your abode, I should have been forever a laughingstock to those of comprehensive enlightenment. To which the spirit of the ocean replied, You cannot speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. You cannot speak of ice to a summer insect, the creature of a season. And then he adds a third one. You cannot speak of Tao to a pedagogue. His scope is too restricted. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But think of it this way. You cannot speak of the way of Jesus to a legalist. His scope is too restricted. Same idea. 
But now that you have emerged from your narrow sphere and have seen the great ocean, you know your own significance, and I can speak to you of great principles. Okay, you got to love this. But think about it. What has happened to the river? See, he was filled within his own little space. Within the narrow canal that he was traveling, he was all that. And he had swelled the banks, and he was full of the joy of thinking that he was the greatest in his sphere, which he was, until he hits the shore and sees the ocean. This is exactly like a new birth. Think of a baby in the birth canal, and then suddenly being expelled out into cold hugeness, and everything that goes on in this space of which... It couldn't conceive. See, it's easy to be a big fish in a small pond in the womb. It's easy to be all that in the womb. Everything is supplied. You're filling the entire space. But when you're expelled out into that cold, huge, different space, how disorienting is that? How crazy is that? Now, fortunately, I don't think anyone here can remember that moment in our lives. But you've You've probably witnessed it with your own children. At least you ladies have. You know Now they let the guys in so we can witness it too. But it's wrenching. If you've got your inserts in front of you, look at that little picture down at the bottom. You know It's wrenching for that child. Warm, filled, held, connected, suddenly expelled, held upside down and spanked. I don't think they do that anymore. You know? But all that stuff, suddenly cold air, having to breathe. You know the first thing that they do after they wipe them off? They wrap them up tightly again. I used to call it the burrito baby. They wrap it up like a little burrito. Want it to be tight because then it gives the infant a sense of, of being held again, that, that confidence of being in the womb again. It's easy to feel big and safe and secure in the womb. But once we're expelled, everything is different. And here's a key. That moment of our greatest personal fullness Whatever that is, wherever we think, like the river, that we are completely filled, we are doing everything we're supposed to do, we're really on point, that also is our moment of greatest self-deception. Believing whatever part of the truth that you have is all of the truth is a block to anything that you would do further. It's a block to any further progress along the way. So the river has gone through this rebirth, has come through the birth canal and seen something completely different. But then he makes the same mistake all over again because he imagines that the ocean is all of that. The ocean is the nth degree and expression of all of that. But the ocean says to him, There is no body of water beneath the canopy of heaven which is greater than ocean. All streams pour into it without cease. Yet it does not overflow. It is constantly being drained off, yet it is never empty. Spring and autumn bring no change. Floods and droughts are equally unknown. And thus it is immeasurably superior to mere rivers and brooks. Though I would not venture to boast on this account, for I get my shape from the universe, my vital power from the yin and yang. In the universe, I am but as a small stone or a small tree on a vast mountain. And conscious thus of my own insignificance, what is there of which I can boast? Ocean had to have the same born-again experience to have this wisdom, to understand 
That even though he is that to the globe, there's something so much greater. For him to learn these great principles, he had to have that same shocking moment of disorientation and disturbance. Think of Jesus and Nicodemus. Here comes Nicodemus by night, right? He is a teacher of Israel. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, most likely. He is all that. In his culture, in his nation, he is filling the space. He has reached the pinnacle. And yet something is tweaking him about Jesus and what he's hearing. He comes to him by night and is told that he needs to be born again if he is going to understand what Jesus is trying to say about this kingdom, about this way to the Father. And of course he misunderstands, but he needed to go through the same process. As long as he was full of himself as a teacher and a leader of Israel, he was blocked. There was nowhere else he could go. Why was this so hard for Nicodemus to get what Jesus is trying to say? You know, it's kind of frustrating when you read John 3 and you read it, and it's just like, we get this. What's the problem with him? Why can't he get this? But do we really get it? We think we understand intellectually the words that are there on the page. But in our own lives, isn't it just as hard for us to go through this rebirthing process Ocean's first words to the river are classic. You can't speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. Think about the well frog. Lives in the little cylinder, the water down at the bottom. Looks up and sees a circle of light at times. Sometimes it's dark. It's light. It's dark. It's light. It's dark. That's the extent of his world. That's all he knows. How are you going to speak about a vast and limitless expanse of water to a creature that has only known that little cylinder? How do you speak of ice to a summer insect that only lives one season and never experiences anything but summer? How are you going to do it? And see, to that I would add, how do you speak of perfect love to a human being, the creature of a broken heart? See, that is our human condition. Jesus is speaking to us of perfect love, which bounces off of us in incomprehension the same way ocean does to the well frog and ice does to the summer insect. We are bound by our broken hearts. Have you all had your heart broken? (laughs) Can you remember the first time you had your heart broken? Does your memory go back that far? For some of us, it was way too early. For some of us, we had our hearts broken as children. How in the world do we recover from that? What is the process of recovering from that? Any life situation. How do we deal with life just being difficult? Life is so difficult. It's a series of hurts and traumas and broken hearts. And at some point, someone that you trusted, someone that you loved, betrayed you, abandoned you, just neglected you, maybe attacked you, something happened that so shattered your world that it leaves scars. What's our reaction to that kind of event in our lives, to that kind of trauma in our lives? Well, the first thing we want to do is crawl back into a fetal position, don't we? We want to bring the world back down to manageable space. Because how did we get hurt in the first place? We got hurt in the first place because we opened ourselves up 
as a child, we're already opened up. We couldn't be any more open as we are as a child. We're vulnerable, we're open, and we get hurt. Later on, as adults, when we fall in love, when we allow someone into our sphere, into our hearts, and they hurt us, the thing we want to do is to pull back in, crawl back into the womb, psychologically speaking. Bring that space in where we're filled again, we're secure again, we're feeling warm again. we got the burrito blanket tightly around us again. That's what we're trying to do. Or we go the other way and get angry, get resentful, and we try to reassert ourselves, reassert the control. But if you think about it, both of these reactions, even though they seem on opposite ends of the spectrum, are both doing the same thing. They're trying to cover our vulnerability, our ability to be hurt with power, with control. We're trying to control the situation again. And yet, we sort of know that all we're really doing is feeling a little bit larger in a slightly smaller space. (laughs) And there's something that is really unsatisfactory about that. Nicodemus understood that even though he was as far as he could go within his culture, something was still missing. Something was still wrong. And Jesus was intriguing him, what he had heard. There was something out there that he was trying to get a hold of. And Jesus is trying to tell him, he's trying to tell us, that the only way that we can start over again is not to go back to our first birth, try to recreate those conditions, but to go forward to our second birth into larger space, which means we've got to go through the disorientation again. We've got to go through the disturbance again. We've got to go through the wailing again of finding ourselves feeling insignificant again in a much larger space. But that's the way of it. If we want to approach Father, Father is infinite space. We're not going to do that all in one go. We're going to do that incrementally by being willing over and over again to be born again to go through that constricted space into something much larger, something that we don't understand. But our broken hearts hold us back. We are terrified of putting ourselves in that position again. We are terrified of allowing ourselves to feel that kind of hurt again, to be betrayed that way again. And so we stay protected. We are afraid to let go of the control that we imagine that we have reasserted. And so the question becomes, how can we escape the confining well of our broken hearts so that we can at least get one glimpse of the Father's perfect love? Now, there's an easy answer that was always given to me, and that's to quote Hebrews. Hebrews 11.6. You want to take a look? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, I can't tell you how many times that was quoted to me back in my early 30s. You you too? It was quoted as sort of a (laughs) cure-all for everything that was going wrong. Anytime that you expressed the slightest bit of doubt, the slightest bit of uncertainty, if you expressed that you were hurting, that you were depressed, anything that was going wrong, it's like someone would come back in and slam down, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God. Okay, great. Now I got that pressure as long as well as everything else, you know. Imagine, just just imagine. Maybe you don't have to imagine very hard <laughs> that you're confused. 
that, that maybe you're depressed. Maybe things are so difficult, you just don't know which end is up. I mean, me as an early 30-year-old, as a young man, suddenly dumped into the evangelical church and trying to figure out what was going on, I was always confused. I didn't get the culture. I didn't get their understanding or reading of the Bible. I didn't understand anything. So I was constantly asking questions. And I was constantly, expre- constantly expressing my uncertainty and my doubt. And, and then I was getting, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, Now I'm depressed. <laughs> It is amazing how abusive the scriptures can be when they're used like a bludgeon, when they're used without understanding. How did I interpret, as that young man, how did I interpret Hebrews 11.6? I felt and I interpreted it as, if I don't believe just the right things and just deeply enough, then God will be displeased with me. God will be angry with me. And God will not be my friend. That's the way I understood Hebrews 11.6. Do you see what that does? To your ability to be vulnerable, to open back up, to be forthcoming with these people, to tell them what's really on your mind, to ask questions anymore, it's the fire extinguisher of all of that. It just shuts you down. Because I didn't want to admit to them that I didn't have the faith that they seemed to have. And how would I know? <laughs> There's more. How would I know if I believed just right? How would I know if I believed deeply enough anyway? Well, I guess if it was, I wasn't confused anymore. If I didn't have any doubt anymore. You know, this is almost literally like pulling yourself up from your own bootstraps. It's like a catch-22, Right? I am confused, I am questioning, I am expressing my confusion and my doubt because I don't have any faith. But how am I going to get the faith if I can't express my confusion and my doubt and get my question answered? And if by doing that I'm displeasing God, then I'm sort of cooked before I start. This is the conundrum that I found myself in. This is how crazy-making it seemed to me to try to follow this logic. But let's go back. Let's go back and look at Hebrews again. Let's put this back into context. And let's see what's really going on, because this is going to be important. The context actually extends across chapters. This is Hebrew 11.6. But let's go back to chapter 10. What Paul, if Paul wrote Hebrews, we're not really sure, but let's just say for convenience sake, Paul did it. All right? If Paul is talking in chapter 10, which he is, about the difference between the Hebrew law, the Hebrew code, and this way of Jesus to Father, to kingdom. He's trying to get, this is a book to the Hebrews, he's trying to get the Hebrews to understand that their slavish following of the law has nothing to do with what Jesus is trying to bring them in faith. He's trying to make that cut. He's trying to de-link those two things so that they can understand It's not just about following law. It is now living in faith along a way to Father and to Kingdom that Jesus is bringing us. So then when he moves to chapter 11, first thing he wants to do, of course, is define this faith that he's talking about. What does he mean by the faith? And how does that work in terms of our following this way of Jesus? So let's go back to Hebrews 11.1. We're going to read from 1 to 5 right up to the verse that we already read. 
So first he's going to do the definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Okay, so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it, by the men of old gained approval. Same idea as pleasing God. Through their faith, the men of old, the patriarchs, pleased God. All right? And by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Worlds there sounds kind of strange. The word there is really eon in in the Greek. And eon actually means ages, generations, perpetuity, eternity, all those. And they understood, just like in the Aramaic, alma means eternity, age, or generation. But it was the same word that was used for world because it described the never-ending cycles and the diversity that... The ancient saws, they looked out over their world. And so the, the two word, the one word means the same thing in both. So we could say by faith we understand that all of the generations, all of the ages, and everything in them were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, faith is not based on empirical evidence. Faith is not based on something that you can solidly prove There's something else going on here. Something under the surface, under the skin, that faith is about. Now, as he's defined it, he's going to start to give examples. And the first one he gives is Abel. By faith, Abel. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Okay? Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, Though he, is, uh, though he is dead, he still speaks. So this idea of obtain, obtaining testimony through his works, through what he did, through how he lived, was evidence of the faith that he had. And now in verse 5, he's going to use Enoch as the next example. Enoch was another Old Testament patriarch. I don't know if you've heard of Enoch, but... He only gets this much in the Bible, but he's a huge figure to the Jews. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So obtaining the witness and obtaining the testimony, the same exact word. The idea is how they lived, how they walked, how they connected with God was the witness of their faith. The witness of their righteousness, the witnesses, the witness of their pleasingness to God. And from Enoch he goes to Noah and then to Abraham and then to Sarah and does the same sort of treatment. So what we need to understand then about Enoch is how did he walk? Because verse five is directly connected to verse six. They act as a block. When Paul continues talking in verse six, he's still talking about Enoch. We have to understand that. If we want to understand what he means by impossible to please God without faith, then we have to understand how that faith applied to Enoch because both of these two are in the Enoch example before he transitions to Noah. That makes sense to you? So what do we know about Enoch? Let's go back to Genesis 5, starting at verse 21. This is all you get in the canonical scriptures about Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. 
Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There are two instances in the Bible where uh, characters were translated directly to heaven. They didn't die. Enoch was the first. Elijah was the second. And so this is the tradition. This is what Paul is talking about. When God took him, he was translated to heaven. That's it. That's all we get (laughs) about Enoch. You know, there's not a whole lot of, there's a couple of references in the New Testament like the one in Hebrews. But Enoch is just this one example of the five. What is it about his walk that we can take away? Now, there's nothing in the scriptures for us, but there's plenty written about Enoch from ancient Jewish commentators and in apocryphal books that didn't make it into the canon. There's a whole book of Enoch, which is a hugely apocalyptic book. There's Enoch all over the place, but just not so much here. But the way that the translators, the way that the scribes and the commentators of of antiquity in in the, the Jewish tradition understood his walk with God was that he worshipped in truth was one way that they put it. Jesus talks about worshipping in, in, in truth. Same thing here. There was something about him where he understood what it really meant to worship. Not legally, not ritually, but he worshipped truthfully. There was a connection between him and God. What does it mean to worship anyway but to reflect who God is, to mirror God in our own life. This is the way they understood his walk with God. They also said he walked in fear of the Lord. And we have to understand that fear of the Lord doesn't mean afraid of the Lord. But it means an intimate understanding of the relationship that we have as humans with the Lord. That we are the dependents. We are the receiver. He is the provider. He is the giver. He is the source of everything. That means that our relationship with God is going to be marked by a sense of humility a sense of reverence, a sense of respect, a sense of awe. That's fear of the Lord. Humble, respectful, awe-inspired, and relational, not legal. If you want the best possible, just concise summary of what walking with God meant to Enoch, take a look at Micah 6, right at verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Oh, God, I love that. 10,000 rams, rivers of oil burned. God doesn't want that. Just do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Hosea says the same thing at 6 6, chapter 6, verse 6. God is speaking here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus quotes that again at Matthew nine thirteen. This is the idea here. Walking humbly. Do justice. Love kindness. 
Do you understand what a perfect balance that is? It's like the, the, the best of both the macro world and the micro world. We've talked in here about how in the macro world, in the group, justice is the highest good. In other words, love looks like justice to the group because without justice, without equality, you lose the integrity of the group. But in the micro and one-on-one relationships, highest good, love looks like mercy and compassion. It looks like kindness because without that, you haven't got a relationship. And so here's this perfect balance. Because what is justice without kindness? It's intolerance. It's abusive, isn't it? But what's kindness without justice? Codependence. And abusive in another way. But to bring the two together in a perfect balance is exactly the mirror of God's nature, of his will. This is how Enoch walked with justice, with kindness, with humility and reverence. And it changed him. It pleased God. But we have to understand what pleasing God means because Sebiana that we've done here many times, which is translated as the will of God, really means the pleasure of God, the desire, the delight of God, the deepest purpose of God. What was Enoch doing as he lived this way? He was entering into living the same way that God lives. He was entering into God's pleasure. He didn't please God as if God would withhold his pleasure from him or be angry with him if he didn't do what he was supposed to do. God is who God is. Enoch was stepping into that pleasure, stepping in literally to the will of God as he lived the way he lived. And this idea of rewarding us when we do this, that is the experience of that oneness, experience of that unity, experience of that connection as we walk, as we move through. This is the faith that brings us into God's pleasure, into God's presence. And the thing that we've got to understand about faith is that faith is not certainty. This is what was pounded into me, at least culturally if not explicitly, as I was trying to make sense out of the evangelical church. But what Jesus is telling us, what Paul is telling us, what these scriptures are telling us, is that faith is not certainty. Can I have faith and still have doubt? Absolutely. Can I have courage and still have fear? Absolutely. Because without fear, there is no courage. If I wasn't afraid, what do I need courage for? Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt. The doubt defines the faith. If there were no doubt, there would be no need for faith. As Paul said, these things that are visible were created by something that is not visible. If you could see it, if you could quantify it, if you could measure it, then you wouldn't need faith. Faith is of a different aspect. Something else is going on here. Faith is not the end of doubt. Faith is the beginning of trust. Because faith is not an idea. It's not belief. Faith is the action that we take as we walk as if something that we say we're convinced of is already true. And what we experience there repeatedly, if it is true, turns into trust. Our anxiety drops. Our expectations change. We are able to open back up and be vulnerable again because we trust again. 
We exceed the limitations of our broken heart. Faith is acting and walking. Faith is not power. Faith is not control. It's not the power over anything. Faith is the willingness, like the river, to open up to the fact of our powerlessness. There's no accident that the first step of the 12 steps is the acceptance of powerlessness. It's no accident that the first beatitude from Jesus' lips is the acceptance of powerlessness. It's the same idea here. It is the prerequisite. Are we willing to embrace our doubts and our fears? Are we willing to embrace our vulnerability and our uncertainty, but to keep walking with God? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to even admit that we have doubts? Because if we're not, then we're still protecting ourselves. We're still wrapped in a fetal position. We're still inside the womb of our fortress and trying to whistle past the graveyard and all our boogeymen. But if we can, just be willing to admit. There is a great scene. Did anyone see the movie Jackie? It's about Jacqueline Anassis. Right, right after the uh, the assassination, it's the it's a story of just a few weeks following the assassination and how she copes and everything that's going on. And there's a there's a runner within the the, the script in the movie where she's meeting with a Catholic priest, trying to make sense of everything, and he's trying to counsel her, and she's very resistant. She's angry. She's bitter. She's all these things, and and she's suicidal, and she's depressed, and and she's expressing all this to the priest. And the priest is John Hurt. And I don't know if you remember John Hurt, but he is just one of the most amazing English actors. And he is the priest, and he handles the the scene so well. And I think what probably made it an amazing performance for him, that he was only about three, four weeks from his own death when he shot that last scene. He had been diagnosed with cancer. He knew he was going to die, but he elected to just keep on working because that's what he loved to do. But he was just weeks from his own death. So this scene especially, and I want to read you the script, and, and just listen. Remember, this is a priest who's probably been a priest for 50 years. And he's counseling the First Lady of the United States, who just lost her husband in the most horrific way, in her lap, to see his head explode. I mean, how do you even do that, Right? And so the priest finally asked her in these, one of these last frames of the movie, why are you really here? Why are you really here with me? Why are you here talking about these things? And Jackie says, I, I needed to talk. He says, you say you pray every night to die, that your children have no use for you, that you wish only to be with your husband, and yet I'm not burying you today. There comes a time in man's search for meaning, when one realizes there are no answers. When you come to that horrible, unavoidable realization, you accept it, or you kill yourself, or you simply stop searching. I have lived a blessed life, and yet every night when I climb into bed, turn off the lights, and stare into the dark, I wonder... Is this all there is? She says, you wonder. Every soul on this planet does. And then when morning comes, we all wake up and make up the coffee. (laughs) She says, why do we bother? Because we do. 
You did this morning and you will again tomorrow. But God in his infinite wisdom has made sure it is just enough for us. It is just enough for us. (laughs) Have you had moments like this? Have you had a moment when you wondered, is this all there is? Here's this priest admitting this to her, becoming vulnerable to her. He, the towering part of the institution of the church, admitting that every night he wonders, is this enough? And yet, every day he gets up again, and he goes through the routine of the day, and he goes and does his ministry and his work, and he talks to Jackie. Because if he allows himself to be a part of this moment, it is just enough. It's always just enough. Not any more than that. Can't know the future. Can't have any risk-free knowledge that, that takes the risk out of your decisions and out of your life. It's just enough. Just enough. Just enough. I remember waking up one night in the middle of the night. I don't know if I told you this. I don't know if I told you this, hon. Pain in the chest, going down the left arm. You know, I had a friend who, uh, his wife found him on the floor next to the bed in the morning. He had died of a heart attack. And that thought goes through, is this it? And what if this is all there is? You know, in the dark, two in the morning, can't see anything but black, the pain, and you wonder, is everything that I've been teaching, is it true? What's going on? I remember driving in one Sunday morning. I know I've told this story before. And it used to be when we lived in Tribuco, I got to come down Antonio. And it used to be that there was nothing there. Not all, not, there wasn't an In-N-Out burger on the corner. It was just fields and hills. And it was the most beautiful part of my drive. And the sun was coming up over the, the Cleveland National Forest and slanting across. And it was gorgeous. And I was just entranced with the beauty of it. And then that thought struck me. What if this is all there is? What if I'm going to go to church today and give a sermon about stuff that doesn't mean anything because this is all there is? A thought strikes you. It has to. Are you taking your faith seriously enough that you actually admit the doubt, that you actually admit to ask the question? But my next thought was, you know what? Jesus believed, and that's good enough for me. And then I went merrily on my way and did my message. You know, the moment was just enough for me. All I had to do was remember that it was just enough for Jesus. So it's got to be just enough for me. If you haven't doubted your faith, you haven't taken your faith seriously. If you aren't willing to live in doubt, then you are stagnant. You aren't moving forward anymore. Are you willing to continually go through the rebirthing process that when you fill up and become familiar and become secure in what you think you believe and what you think you know, are you willing to sell all that again? To be expelled out into the great vastness of a new endless horizon and see something again for the first time? This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what it means to move along his way. This is the faith to keep walking and acting as if these things are true, regardless of where they take us, because where they will take us is to ever larger and larger and larger wells for our little well frog. That's the beauty of it. I wanted to close with just the last couple of paragraphs from this chapter in the book. See if it brings it all together. Being reborn 
tears us from everything we know and think we understand. It takes us from all the comforting and familiar things that we have piled up around ourselves in the effort to feel bounded and held and in control. It seems to require so much of us, so much loss, that we resist as long as we can. But rebirth doesn't take from us anything we actually possess and offers back everything we already do. If we can find our way to not simply give up, stop resisting, but to truly surrender and take that first step, our rebirth will open the rest of the way to immense new experience full of the adventure and exhilaration of possibilities we didn't even know existed. From the other side of his rebirth, Yeshua looks up at us from the standing height of a child, from the kneeling height of a servant at our feet, saying that what he has done, we can do, and greater things than these. There he is, way down there, with the wind combing through his hair, beckoning with his broad, blinding smile, and speaking with the unmistakable ring of the truth that makes us free. Because in all our powerlessness... There is one power we do possess, the power to choose to hitch our strollers to the power greater than ourselves, the only power that can take us where we really want to go. As creatures of a broken heart, the truth that the way to healing is actually down and not up, a letting go rather than an acquisition, an admission of vulnerability, a lowering of imagined position is just too frightening to accept as long as we believe we have any power left to defend. But when the first wall comes down and instead of the hordes of the enemy we have feared so long, we are greeted with a limitless view of ocean, we are at first still terrified with the dawning of our own seeming insignificance. But if we will stay on that shore and not run back to the fortification of womb and well, our eyes will slowly adjust to the brilliance of the light, and we will stand blinking and squinting and eventually smiling with all the other vulnerable ones who have come to know that they are finally on their way home. Faith wielded as personal power is religious illusion. Faith with power to heal broken hearts rests on powerless vulnerability. Let's pray. Father, the amazing thing for us to try to understand is that you are a vulnerable God. You are an unassuming God. You are the God that Jesus showed us to be someone willing to wash our feet, someone willing to be the servant of everyone, to lay aside everything that matters to him personally in favor of the beloved who stands in front of him. You are that God. Help us to be willing and to finally take pleasure in mirroring that vulnerability to even revel in our weakness the way Paul did, realizing that in that weakness, in that admission of confusion and doubt, we become strong because we finally are leaning on you. Help us to lean more securely on you, Father, not on our own understanding. We want to lean on you. 
Help us to let go of anything that blocks any resistance that keeps us from continuing to open ourselves up, even though we may get hurt. Thank you once again, Father, for showing the way, for giving us every possible advantage. And thank you for loving us and always reminding us that we can only love because you did first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's all stand.